This podcast is offered to you by Zen Center North Shore on the web at www.zencenternorthshore.org. This program is made possible by donations from listeners like you.
you know, we don't you know, scratch our heads and think, well, that's weird. I don't think that Einstein would care about Buddhism. We kind of think maybe he would. So what I want to do now is, um, I mean, obviously we can't talk about the whole history of, of science and Buddhism in America. I want to look at three particular moments in American history, including the present moment. And I want to look at the way in which Buddhism and science were configured to be resonant with each other. I want us to think about what was going on at that time, why it was meaningful to people to think about Buddhism and science in this way, and then try to ask us those same questions about the way in which our contemporary American society is thinking about these issues. And then in particular, whether or not we have something invested in it, we as personal practitioners, we as members of the Buddhist community, and you know how it can serve us, or does it serve us, or whatever. So the first, I have three different snapshots. And the first snapshot is sideways, of course, the World Columbian Exposition, which happened in Chicago in 1893. I don't know if you guys have read about this or know much about this. So in 1893, this was held in Chicago to mark the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's voyage to the Americans. It attracted, are you ready for this, 13 million Americans, which back then represented like one of five people in America. This was an enormously popular, significant event. Um, I should add that it had a very strong kind of educational and, dare I say, nationalistic um, kind of undertone. So in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, these kinds of expositions and fairs were ways of educating people, not only about kind of, you know, their nation and its place in the world, but also it was a way of teaching kind of people who they were in their society. What is your place in the world? And so the fair was designed, and I found the pamphlet from them. Oh, yes, here it is. It's designed to prove that the wonderful progress of the United States, as well as the character of the people, is the result of Darwin's new theory of natural selection. So this is, we're now at cusp of the century. This is Victorian America. And this is the time when Darwin is disrupting, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of religious faith. Like, here's Darwin. This is the new, this is the new idea. And it's enormously unsettling to people, and it's also very invigorating. So the point of the exposition here was to, if you will, illustrate the steps of progress of civilization in all lands up to the present time. Translation, let's set up the world so we can show that Chicago is the very top of the evolutionary pyramid and everybody else works their way down. <clears throat> This was, I should add, the World Columbian Exposition was functionally a giant object lesson in race science, right? It was this remarkably Western-centric vision of social Darwinism. And as one of the ways that they expressed that, one of the ways that you would go when you visited, is that you would walk through an area, it was called the Midway Place Homes, and it was, there was there, they didn't call it this, it was called like the World of Peoples, but it was a living exhibit of the world's races. So after you stepped out of the main you know, hall of the Chicago section, you would then start working your way through these little villages that had been set up so you could see, you know, human evolutionary progress. So if you step away from Chicago, you first run into two German, and then you run into Irish villages. And then you work your way systematically through villages representing the Middle East, West Asia, East Asia, Africans, and then North American Indians. I like the one in the middle a lot for a variety of reasons. I, I have a friend who wrote about this. So this group of people right smack in the middle were from Bolivia. And they came at considerable time and trouble and expense to, you know, to Chicago. And after the thing was over, the person who had been 
you know, helping them disappeared. I think actually he died, and they were stranded. And they ended up walking. They walked from Chicago to New York City. And they ended up getting jobs in Coney Island so they could be like in the freak show, right? I mean, just there's just remarkable stuff. Like these are just remarkable things going on. In the upper left are Arabs. On the very right-hand side, you have a Hindu juggler. He's not juggling right now, which is a downer. But, um, and then you have people from like Melanesia on the lower left and people from Africa on the lower right. And of course, you have an Indian woman on the very top. But it's not clear what part she's from the east. It was unclear what part she was from. Okay, so the bottom line here is that you're in this situation, and this is the backdrop then for the very, very first time that Americans are ever going to meet their own Asian Buddhists. Yes, Gary? It is a zoo, it's a human zoo. These were really big at the end of the 19th century. It's, it's, yeah, words fail. So, this is the backdrop now for another event which takes place in October of 1893. It is called the World Parliament of Religion. So here we are, we're in a time period in American history when things are a little rattled around. You know, Christianity is feeling a little, you know, we thought we knew what was going on. But we also have a very strong sense that we are Americans and we're number one. By the way, we're Protestant Christians and we know we're number one too, although we're a little bit anxious about how exactly we're number one because Christianity and Darwin are having not a happy time together. So, this giant world's parliament of religions was created, and this is supposed to be a meeting, a representative of all of the world's religions that would give speeches in the spirit of interfaith dialogue. And they planned this two years in advance, it took forever to set this thing up. And they had people, representatives, over a period of several days who spoke. And two of the people who spoke were Buddhist, they are Shaku Soen from Japan, who represented Zen Buddhism, and Anagarika Dharmapala, who was from Ceylon, and he represented so-called Theravada Buddhism. So these are the two guys that are, let's see, we have Soen there and Dharmapala over there. And they have to give presentations to this audience on what is Buddhism. And people are very interested and excited because honestly, they have never met a real life Buddhist from Asia that's coming to talk to them about what is Buddhism. So what do they say it is? Dharmapala goes first. So what do you need to know about Dharmapala? You need to know that he's from Ceylon. You need to know that he is incredibly well educated in a, in a British setting so that he speaks actually with a bit of a British accent. He can quote the Bible. He's hyper-educated. He's also um, an Orthodox Buddhist from, you know, from Ceylon. And he's been influenced as well by the theosophical movement which is going on in America. So the upshot of this is that he has a very kind of eclectic background. But the main reason he's here, the main reason he's getting out of bed in the morning, is that he is trying to bring a Buddhist revival back to Ceylon. He wants to join, he wants the Ceylonese people to come together and to kind of revive Buddhism and to get a sense of national identity after decades and decades and decades of colonization and and Christian missionizing. So his job to here is to present a Buddhism to, to America that's something that they're going to respect because he respects it. You know, he's not making this up. But the way that he chooses to pitch Buddhism, or the, the part of Buddhism that for him seems very meaningful and, and significant, um, is Buddhism as a form of science. And here I'm just going to read this section from a much a longer speech. It's a fabulous speech. And, 
you were my students, I'd make you all read it, and then I'd quiz you on it in the middle of the night. So, speaking of deity in the sense of a supreme creator, Buddha says that there is no such being. Accepting the doctrine of evolution as the only true one, with its corollary, the law of cause and effect, he condemns the idea of a creator, and strictly forbids inquiry into it as being useless. Buddhism is a scientific religion, inasmuch as it earnestly enjoins that nothing would ever be accepted on faith. Buddha has said that nothing should be believed merely because it is said. Buddhism is tantamount to a knowledge of other sciences. So this is, I guess, transparent what's going on here. I mean, he's now very clearly equating karma with evolution. He is equating Buddhism as a science. And in so doing, he's tacitly taking Buddhism's antiquity in comparison with Christianity. And he's kind of saying, you know what? We kind of beat you to it. You know, you guys came up with science recently, but we've been doing, you know, when you guys were swinging in trees 2,000 years ago, we were scientists. And in so doing, he really kind of reverses that whole evolutionary little pyramid, doesn't he? Because he was supposed to be on the bottom. We all walked through the village, and he was supposed to be on the bottom. But he's not on the bottom, is he? Turns out the Europeans are on the bottom. The Christians have to catch up. So the people were, this blew people's minds. And I have to say that they also loved him. This was enormously influential and, and, and interesting to people. The other person who came up was Shaku Soen. And he also gave, um, he was a very impressive Zen Buddhist master. He um, prepared and gave his speech also in English because he had a lovely Japanese translator named D.T. Suzuki who helped him write out his speech. D.T. Suzuki would go on and have a famed career in America, as you no doubt know. But the way the, the speech that they put together was very much also <coughs> contrasting um, Buddhist notions of karma as the principle of causation with Christian notions of God as a prime mover. You know, he's very much invested in showing how rational Buddhism is, how much it's about cause and effect. Um, that, you know, he's, he's very also interested in highlighting how non-theistic it is. He suggests that Buddhist principles of karma are absolutely compatible with modern science. And so there you go. Both of them present Buddhism in ways that are like negations of elements of Christianity that the Victorians were having trouble with, right? So there's no cumbersome personal god. You have a universe run by natural law and cause and effect rather than you know, like the capricious dictates, you know, of some creator god. You have a founder who encourages skepticism and experimentation over blind faith. You have karma and rebirth and continuity of species actually anticipating evolutionary theory. What does the audience make of this? They love it. They go bananas. They're incredibly enamored of, of, of this. And in fact, I believe a week after this talk is done, um, at a meeting of the Theosophical Society in Chicago, Dharmapala presided over the initiation of the first person to become a Buddhist on American soil. This New York businessman named Charles T. Strauss. I don't know anything else about him, but I would like to. Like, did his wife leave him? Like, what happened after he suddenly, like, jumped out of Victorian New York City and was like, I'm a Buddhist. You know, what happens there? <laughs> so here's our first moment. <laughs> I know, right? Like, do his kids talk about it? Anyhow, I'm now going to jump ahead. Um, what I'm jumping ahead over, sorry? Are we going to get to read what he uh, Yeah, you could read it. I'm sorry, I forgot about that. Um, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, Joan, I'm going to ask you, please. Oh, yeah. Should I read that one? No, I want you to read 2B. The yeah. law of causality exists for eternity without beginning, without 
without end. Things grow and decay, and this is caused not by an external power, but by an internal force, which is in things themselves as an innate attribute. Just as the clock moves by itself without any intervention of any external force, so is the progress of the universe. We enjoy happiness and suffer misery, our own actions being causes. In other words, there is no other cause than our own actions, which make us happy or unhappy. Heaven and hell are self-made. God did not provide you with a hell, but you yourself. Still really works, huh? It's very potent. I mean, he was a genius. You know, he was a great practitioner. Um, but, you know, as stirring as I find it now, they found it even more stirring. It was enormously influential. So I'm going to want to jump ahead now, um, significantly, I might add, to our second snapshot. The part that I'm leaping over is really mostly like the 19th, well, from the 1930s, like 40s, 50s, you have D.T. Suzuki being a major force in American, representing Zen to Americans. He keeps alive the science and Buddhism piece a bit by equating science very much with psychology and psychoanalysis, I mean, Zen as a form of kind of psychology. But things I would argue, Buddhism and science discourse pops ahead really big time back in, in around when you get to the middle of the, about, um, the middle of the 1970s. So I actually have this old photograph of the Eastern religion section from an old used bookstore in New York where I used to grow up. I mean, I used to grow up. That's where I grew up. I think I'm done growing up. <laughs> it's never over. <laughs> so I'm asking us if we could just maybe look at what we got here. So we have this funky book, Buddhism, Life, and Teachings. We have two copies of the Tao of Physics. We have Iliade. We have Mori Iliade, Graves, Joseph Campbell. Is this looking familiar to anybody? Is there anybody here as old as I am who looks at this and says, oh my God, that totally looks like my old bookshelf when I was in high school. <laughs> this might as well have been my old bookshelf in high school. So what's the main book there? Whoa. This is the main book there. Mm -hmm. In 19, and wait, how many people have heard of this book? Mm -hmm. Really? I, and my, my students are just like, how do you say that? Is that Tao? I'm like, hush, hush. Tao <laughs> um, of Physics, it came out in 1975, and it was a really strange breakout kind of wild success. Um, it was written by a man named Richard Capra. He's from Austria. And he was, he's a physicist, and I think he wrote this book when he was in between jobs. You know, like, he just said, I don't know, you know, I think I'm going to write something. So he wrote this book. It comes out in 1975, and it turns out to be a weird, improbable bestseller, right? And I'm not kidding. Like, it was published in 43 editions in 23 languages. By 1983, a half a million copies had been sold in the U.S. This book would show up in, as required reading in college physics classes. Mm. It's scholarly journals from multiple disciplines would have long discussions about this, like forums and conferences and such. I mean, there was really, at that time, probably no other popularization that received such, you know, such serious and kind of sustained scrutiny. You know, like 15 years later, you can go into journals in 1990 and you still talk about this book. Physicists thought the book was silly. Non-physicists, this blew their mind. <clears throat> um, there would be a whole variety of other books that would come out afterwards. Gary Zukov, The Dancing Late Masters and such. Here is this little other moment in time. Now we're in you know, 1970s, early 1980s, when this nailed it for people. There was something about what this book was saying or doing that really hit, hit, hit a nerve for people. I'd like to look a little bit at what's here. 
So I pulled out a few quotes from the book. Science does not need mysticism, and mysticism does not need science, but man needs both. And the mystic and the physicist arrive at the same conclusion, one starting from the inner realm and the other from the outer world. Here, I'm, I'd argue, is something that I think we're, you probably have kind of heard this a little bit before. There's this idea of Buddhism being sort of a science of the inside, but there's a kind of a, a duality in which, you know, sort of West and science looks outwards and tries to control the world, and East and Buddhism and meditation are more concerned like with kind of an inner landscape. So this is very much the stuff of the Tao of physics. Um, his basic argument is that, um, that when you study the various modes of subatomic physics, you will see that they express again and again the same insight, which is that the constituents of matter and the basic phenomena involving them are all interconnected. And they're interrelated and they're interdependent in ways that quantum, that in, in that non-quantum physics didn't really understand. Newtonian physics sees things as all kind of existing, you know, as independent satellites. But in quantum physics, things are weirdly entailed by each other. And this, he said, was an insight that had been expressed by the mystic traditions of Asia for thousands and thousands of years. So Kapra here actually takes the interdependence of phenomena in, in Buddhist thought and equates it with, with quantum reality. Um, in this way, I, I would argue that he's, he's in some ways arguing that, that Buddhism beats Einstein to relativity's core insight, you know, that there's no view from nowhere, you know, that there's no God's eye view, that even the truths of physics, you know, are relational, that they're perspectival. If physics leads us today to a worldview which is essentially mystical, it returns in a way to its beginning 2,500 years ago. And this time, however, it is not only based on intuition, but on experiments of great precision and sophistication, and on a rigorous and consistent mathematical formalism. So I love this. This is very much the same kind of, you know, the beginning is the end is the beginning again. You know, here we are at the most advanced form of physics, and yet somehow we're also back 2,500 years. You know, we've returned, it's like we're home again, but we have, you know, better technology. A page from a journal of modern experimental physics is as mysterious to the uninitiated as a Tibetan monk, but both are records of inquiries into the nature of the universe. And there's also a great concern with language, that Zen in particular was seen to be, in some ways, the appropriate way to talk about quantum reality. And in the same way that, that, that language could, in some ways, do justice, language didn't make a lot of sense, it didn't do justice to the way that quantum reality functioned. You couldn't, there wasn't a clear, relationship between, you know, the referent and the thing, you know. But Zen always had a kind of a, you know, an ambivalence about language. And so he would bring up a lot, well, you know, the instance you speak about it, speak about a thing, you miss it. So the same kind of ambivalent orientation to language that was so important to, to Zen thinking and training also seemed to Kapra to be exactly the same kind of problem that quantum physics was trying to grapple. And I gotta ask, and I'm interested to know what you guys think. What what was going on in the 1970s that made this so compelling? Arms race. Ah, oh, very interesting. <laughs> Arms race. Yeah. I mean, destruction of the planet. Ah, oh, so you're getting just kind of like a moral or ethical thing, which is interesting. I'm kind of wondering though why, like, like needing to reconcile quantum physics, like why that was so important to people. It's a space race. Oh, space race. I don't know. I gotta think about it. Maybe so. Space race. Yeah, yeah. Space race. Well, I 
LSD and quantum reality. Gary, please. It seems like if you go back to the I just wonder how much people really knew about quantum physics. You know, like she's a quantum physicist. Understanding of the actual science itself, no. or is it just the actual reaction 
to their uh, the way they viewed science and their paradigm and didn't like the So, my understanding of I mean I've read actually recently just read a bunch of book reviews of this back from the from the eighties. So everybody agreed that the quantum physics that he was describing was accurate. He was like a respected physicist. But there was this idea that he was just, you know, sort of cherry-picking from all of these different religious traditions and just finding things that matched. I should add that in this book, he doesn't even, he talks about Eastern mysticism as if it's like one big entity. You know, so sometimes it's Hinduism, sometimes it's Buddhism, sometimes it's Taoism. So there's just this big clot of, like, stuff out there that's called Eastern mysticism. And he cherry-picks and finds different sections that kind of work. So like, oh, Zen language, that'll work. And so a lot of people were put off a bit by his failure to make an analytical distinction between each of these different traditions. You know, that was troubling to people. But just a general sense that he, you know, he didn't, he did he was not a, a religion scholar. He didn't read primary languages. You know, he, it was a kind of an amateur hour. Um, but I have to say that for amateurs, it, it didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter. He wasn't building a rocket to go to the moon or like, oh, it turned out he didn't actually go to elementary school, so it didn't work. I mean, it was just somehow stimulating people's imaginations or, you know, so physicists were irritated by it. Scholars of religion were irritated by it. Everybody else felt pretty darn good. Yeah. Like Maybe so. I mean, Alan, I think, even more potent than, you know, than Richard yeah. Opera. But you know. it was very much Right, right, absolutely. Anyhow, I want to get to one more snapshot. It's kind of the New Age movement. It's exactly the New Age. This is it, babe. One this last comment. Yeah. Please, yeah. We can when you're up. educated as a scientist, religion never enters into the picture of your education. Not in case you went to college after 1975, and yeah. then you have to read the Tao of Physics for like six but, years. Yeah. I was educated in that. So, we were taught all the hard sciences. Anything that wasn't evidence-based, Meta-analysis, right. you don't acknowledge it. Right. Right. It doesn't exactly. exist. Yeah. Everything else is an excuse to be. Religion is an excuse to give something a reason. So, do you think people were that that oh. scientists found this kind of weirdly attractive, like that that sense of well, feeling? Well, as a curiosity, but I'm not at all surprised that a physicist would just right. say, "Yeah, exactly." Are you? Although I must say that there were a lot of physicists who would assign this to their class, and people would say, if you don't respect it, why do it? He said, because I've never had 300 people in my introductory <laughs> You know, like it was, what? you know, like, <laughs> you know, who, who signs up for, you know, intro physics, you know, like six people, you know, but no, this was like people were waitlisted. I think that once people don't get past themselves and their yeah. egos, Yeah, I recommend you can read something called How the Hippies Save Physics. But anyhow, we'll get there. Um, I want to look to the third, our third snapshot, which brings us much more to the present. And this is, of course, neuroscience and meditation. And in particular, the way in which in recent years, expositions, I mean, we've, we see a continuation of expositions in quantum physics, you know, throughout the present day. But the most recent conversation that's bridging Buddhism and science very much focuses on the neuroscience of meditation, especially on Tibetan Buddhist forms of meditation. So before we talk about this, just as a Tibetan Buddhist scholar of sorts, I need to explain to you how crazy this is. So a hundred years ago, if you were reading anything about Tibetan Buddhism in America, you would it would be presented to you as the most corrupt, debased, 
illegitimate form of Buddhism in world history. It was seen to be this really, you know, it was developed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, you know, a thousand years after the Buddha dies, and the forms of Buddhism, Tantric, Vajrayana Buddhism, that were being practiced into that, were understood in the West to be just really debased. People didn't even say this was Buddhism. You know, oh my God, it's just like, you know, people running around like shaking rocks. Like, it was just, it couldn't, it was, if you were going to be racist about any form of Buddhism in America, Tantra would be it. You look at the early textbooks, you know, on the first academic textbooks on Buddhism, they won't even have a section on Tantra. It would be like, I'm not going to waste my time with this silliness. Let's go back to real philosophy. And so I just have to say that when I look at this and I see, you know, this Buddhist monk with electrodes on his head, I say, well, what the hell? How did we get here? You know, how did we get from being, you know, this primitive, you know, corrupt thing to being cutting-edge, you know, neuroscience? How, how did we get here? Could, you, could I ask if you wouldn't mind sharing with the group your understanding of tantric Buddhism? What right is now. that? Just in a, in a sentence. Sure. So, so talk about I, that around Yeah, I'm sorry. So, Vajrayana Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, you know, a little snapshot, because I don't know, well, do other people here know what tantric Well, okay, everybody here is currently in Tantra. Now I feel like a jerk. Um, Vajrayana Buddhism. Okay, quick snapshot. It's a form of Mahayana Buddhism. It's the esoteric dimension of Mahayana Buddhism. Tantra is an esoteric movement that develops in India from around the 6th century CE onwards. It develops in Buddhism. It develops in Hinduism. It develops in Jainism. It will spread in, throughout East Asia. And what it essentially, in its earliest forms, what it claims to be, is a whole series, it's that the intention behind tantric practice is absolutely the same as the Mahayana intention, um, intention i.e., you know, you're trying to cultivate yourself, you're trying to, you know, enlighten yourself for the sake of the suffering of other beings. But tantra promises to do it much, much more quickly. You know, so where you would need, you know, 365 times 10 to the 25th numbers of incarnations on the Mahayana path, on the Vajrayana path, you have the same intention but you undertake different kinds of meditations and ritual practices and philosophical discussions and such that accelerate it really quite violently. Like, one lifetime, two lifetimes. You know, it's, it's the rocket science of, um, of Mahayana Buddhism. Many of the strategies and the rituals and such that were used, particularly in the uh, maybe six, 700 CE India, went on, took very, uh, took very literally the philosophical insight that um, of non-duality, you know, that nirvana is samsara, samsara is nirvana, and towards that end would engage in practices that were considered to be socially transgressive. You know, you could eat food, you know, eat, you know, impure foods, or, you know, drink beer, or, you know, meditate in graveyards, you know, go into things that were considered to be impure, because really, what is purity? You know, at the end of the day, it's just one more duality, the pure and the impure. So rather than saying, oh, I'm going to stay away from you know, the impure, you say, no, I'm actually going to embrace the impure, and I'm going to use it as like fuel you know, for my practice. I'm just going to, I'm going to take really seriously, I'm going to instantiate non-duality and say, let's do this thing. So rather than saying, oh, I can't be angry, I have, you know, you'll, no, you'll commute your anger and you'll turn it into fuel for practice. So this is controversial, as you can imagine. Uh, it was also um, remarkably creative, and in in contemporary academia, Tantra is considered to be some of the most sophisticated, difficult, you know, it's the, it's now the top of the evolutionary heap to study Tantra as a graduate student. 
you know, not everybody gets to do it. And it's really, really hard. Like I had to translate, I had to translate tantric texts for my dissertation. It, I mean, what was I thinking? What was I wasn't thinking? The bottom line is that the tantric texts themselves, not only are they written in, they're written in Sanskrit, most of them, they're also written in code so that uninitiated people can't possibly understand them. And they're, so, and the only way that you can understand them is to have a llama or somebody tell you what's going on here. So they're secret, they're esoteric, um, and it requires a great personal commitment to, you have to be selected, you know, to, to be a tantric practitioner, you don't just like sign up for it. Um, and then it's, it's, a, it's a whole lifestyle, very, very strenuous, and the people who can, are really good tantric practitioners are just remarkable, they're like superheroes to me. Um, let's keep on going, in fact, so we can see what I'm talking about. Um, so, I would suggest that the whole um, kind of, you know, neuroscience and Buddhism thing kicks up around the same time, actually, as um, the Tao of Physics. So a guy named Herbert Benson in 1975 wrote a book called The Relaxation Response. And what he does, he's a doctor, and he works with meditators, you know, trained, you know, monastic meditators, and he actually starts to, um, he measures their bodies, like what happens to them when they're meditating. And he's the guy who comes up with this, this big insight that meditators have physiological changes that happen that radically transform them, like bodily-wise. In other words, that mind and body are really non-dual in this case, and that you can have measurable drops, for example, like in stress by meditating. And t today, that sounds to us like, duh, you know, we're all used to that. Like, oh, are you stressed out? You should learn to meditate. But that, nobody knew that. In 1975, that was not the given. You know, this was not, you know, 1-800, you know, take a Valium. Um, so he kind of does his, this first thing. And then the Dalai Lama comes on the scene. And the Dalai Lama, uh, he comes to the United States for the first time, I believe in 1979. And the Dalai Lama is profoundly interested in sciences. He was interested as a kid with science. You know, I don't know if you've ever read any of his autobiographies, but he's just deeply, deeply engaged. And one of the ways, and one of the things that he's very interested in is having conversations with science, with, with scientists, particularly scientists of like brain and mind, to see whether some of what the Tibetan Buddhist tradition has learned about mind, you know, what do you guys know about it? What do we know about it? You know, let's see if we can talk. And so very famously, I believe it was in 1982, um, they did a series of studies with actually a, a bunch of um, Harvard professors went to Dharamsala, where His Holiness was living, you know, that's where his monastery is, and they chose, I think, like a half a dozen very pretty high, highly trained Tibetan tantric practitioners. And those practitioners did a form of meditation which is known as Kumo, which literally means, um, it means like heat yoga, you know? And it's pretty interesting. Um, the, during the, it's a very advanced meditation, and part of when you're doing it is you, you visualize that there's a flame at the top of your head and that that flame is melting, you know, drops that are falling down your subtle body and such. But when you do it, your body temperature rises. And indeed, you, you can go to this day, you can go to Dharamsala or parts of the Tibetan Plateau, and you can see people who are practicing it. And they, I mean, sometimes they, they have contests, like they wrap themselves up in wet sheets, and then they try to steam them off, who gets it first. You know, like, it's sort of like a party trick. But for the Harvard, the Harvard people, it blew their minds, right? So they hook up electrodes to these guys, and they're like, oh my god, these guys are just sitting here, doing something in their minds, and their body temperature goes up by like 10 degrees. You know, this was supposed to be something that your body, you know, is involuntary. You, know, you get hot, you get cold. But nope, they could control it. 
And so this starts off this whole kind of fervor, if you will, um, about kind of rethinking what the relationship is of body and mind, and whether Tibetan Buddhism in particular could teach us anything about it. Um, the latest kind of, I guess the iteration now, um, is very much, it's less involved with body and it's much more involved with, with brain and plasticity. So um, most of the two major forms of, that are going on now are that scientists, they're trying to evaluate the efficacy, if you will, of a few different types of meditation. They use something called focused attention, open monitoring, and compassion meditation. And what they do is they look at what happens to people's brains. They send them into fMRI machines, and they look at what happens to their brains while they're doing this, and they see how their brains light up, what changes. And they observe, for example, that long-term meditators not only do different parts of their brain light up, but that, that meditation over time actually changes the, you know, like the shape of their brain. You know, there's plasticity. It generates, you know, palpable, measurable differences in their brain. Um, this was hugely popular, the EEG brain waves during compassion meditation. Uh, this guy named um, Matthew Ricard, a lovely man, although if you're not a vegetarian, don't go out to eat with him. Um, he really killed my soft shell crowd. Like to this day, I look at them and they want to throw up. Anyhow, um, he was, to, he's to this day, considered to be the world's happiest man. He's a lovely guy. He, was, he used to be a molecular biologist. He gave it all up, moved to Nepal, and became a monk. And he is a, you know, a really fabulous meditator. And for many, many years, he's been the guy who they put electrodes on, and they look him up, and parts of his brains that had never been recorded in you know, neuroscientific history. He meditates on compassion, and his whole brain lights up in ways that we've never seen before. It like blew people's minds. Um, I, like, I just pulled this article from The Atlantic. This is a relatively recent one. Although one finds in the Buddhist literature many treatises or traditional sciences, he says, like medicine and cosmology, botanic, and so on, Tibetan Buddhism has not endeavored to the same extent as Western civilizations to expand its knowledge of the world through the natural sciences. Rather, it has pursued an exhaustive investigation of the mind for 2,500 years and has accumulated in an empirical way a wealth of experiential findings over the centuries. So here he is. I feel like, wow, this could be, we could be back in 1893, we could be in 1975. You know, we have, a, I, I see a few different pieces here. I see, once again, that this is if East and West are like two different complements to each other. You know, West went outside and East went inside. I see, once again, that Buddhism is a form of science here, that Buddhism is also its experiential findings. You know, it's another, but it's an, it's an internal kind of Microscope. You know, it's as if we were, were psychonauts and the Westerns were, you know, astronauts. They, we went to the moon and they went to, you know, quantum reality. Um, and so Matthew Ricard is one of the more significant like, figures in this movement, although His Holiness the Dalai Lama is arguably a lot more so. But I, I need to, I should point out that this started in about the 80s and it is still going strong in 2019. Um, hold on. If you were to browse around and just, I just did this recently, like a couple of books on it, what kinds of things are going on, you know, retreats and such, it's everywhere. We, most, a lot of, you know, Americans now kind of take some kind of presumption that somehow laboratories and monks and neurons and electrodes and things are all kind of in the same field. This came to, I would argue, a kind of a remarkable culmination in an event that I think is just extraordinarily interesting. So back in 2005, 
the Dalai Lama was invited to be the keynote speaker to the annual meeting of the um, uh, Society for Neuroscience. Society for Neuroscience. Mm -hmm. um, everybody was very excited about it, except for the people who weren't. <laughs> and the people who weren't wrote a giant petition and tried to get him, they tried to block his, his speaking at this. And the argument had multiple parts to it. One was, hey, remember religion and science? Remember how they're not supposed to be the same thing? Like, ding, 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 ding. How is it that we're having a Buddhist monk come and talk to us at a Society for Neuroscience? You know, that in some ways the logic was a little bit like church and state. You know, this is transgressing the church and state, you know. Um, other people argued, oh, no, you know, you're just saying that because they were understanding this as being, you know, um, that many of the, the people who were protesting were Chinese. And so people said, oh, you're really talking geopolitics here. You know, this is, this is you know, you're, you're pissed because the Dalai Lama is, you know, is getting this kind of prestigious disability and such. And... You know, in China, you, you know, the Dalai Lama's, you know, persona non grata, and they, so they, they perceived this to be a kind of, a, you know, a public relations coup for the Dalai Lama, and they were angered about it. All hell breaks loose on the internet. I mean, it was, it was kind of, it was remarkable to me, because on the one hand, I feel like what I study is really, like, esoteric and strange, you know, translating, like, weird grammatical structures and tantra and, like, reading, you know, and then every now and then it bursts out on the New York Times, like, this is a really big deal. Like, there's, there are things at stake here. Like, these presumptions about Buddhism and science, or the distinction between science and religion, these are carriers for very deeply felt concerns for people in our society. You know, there's, there's something at stake here. You know, there's something going on. And I, I'm interested a lot right now, I think, in understanding what's at stake for us here the neuroscience of meditation and such. You know, I observed that in all of the, and each of the things that we're looking at, that the points of comparison between Buddhism and science are really pretty different. You know, in, in 1893, the context was a response to Christian missionizing and a way of upending, you know, racist hierarchies. And in the 70s and the 80s, it was about harmonizing, you know, ancient religion with quantum physics. And in the middle of this third example, I'm still, I'm still kind of struggling with it. What I do notice is that, you know, in spite of all of these differences, what has not changed, it seems to me, is this idea that, that, that Buddhism can function as a kind of a broker between modern science and religious and ethical values. You know, my intuition here is that if somehow we can bring Buddhism into dialogue with science, we'll, we'll also somehow bring ethics into, into science. You know, we'll start mm -hmm. make, asking different kinds of questions because our science has now brought us to the we're at the brink of like you know nuclear annihilation or global warming and such. And so maybe if we could have a science that also had a part, mm. you know, maybe this maybe this is what's going to save us. Mm. And what the science is seems to change, you know, from different time periods in history. And frankly, what kind of Buddhism is invoked as being the most scientific also changes. But this this kind of dream of somehow unifying them. That's the piece that I, I find so so interesting. And I'm, I'm interested in knowing what it is about this particular, the neuroscience of, of meditation, why we think this resonates so deeply for us right now, you know, in American culture, whether it resonates for you, um, and what possibilities, or does, you know, how does it, how would it serve us as individuals? Is there some way that 
would serve us as Dharma practitioners, as, as communities. What do you think is going on here, and what is at stake? What is at stake here? What is it we want? What are we looking for? What do we need? I'd like to know what you think about that. Mm -hmm. I think people want to be fixed, so they want to, people just want to feel good, no matter what. Especially now, people suffer and struggle a lot. So I think people are turning to alternative ways of doing that, and I think meditation is an example of it. So I think this is like, gives people that, instead of being this like, you know, groovy, hippie meditation, it's like, oh, there's proof. That's a really interesting, the whole point is super interesting. Because, yeah, I'm sorry, did you want to jump in? Give birth to the secular mindfulness movement and the meditation for profit business sector with the, the uh, life coach scans and, and so on. Yeah, this is, I would suggest an outgrowth. I don't think this created it. I think this is in some ways kind of an outgrowth of it. But I'm, I'm with you here. You know, that to say that Buddhist meditation has been taken out of context, appropriated, and used in every possible way imaginable in American culture is just, there's no point in, there's no argument about that. I don't feel the same way about the neuroscience thing as I do about the, the commodification of mindfulness. I think, to me, this is, this seems a little bit more self-conscious to me. You know, there's people who are really deeply invested in trying to understand, you know, like, what are things that science and Buddhism really disagree about? And what are, what, are we, what, do we, what do we agree to disagree about? And then where can we also have a conversation? You know, so I have more respect for, for this, this movement than I do for, you know, spend $900 and learn how to, you know, not, not hate your boss so much. So what comes out for me about this, which I think is really interesting, the neuroscience and the science of meditation. Uh -huh. And Alyssa, it's kind of based on what we were saying, what came up for me is, when people come here sometimes for the first time for you know, to learn how to meditate, people want so much to know how to do it right. And so there's a way in which calling it science, it presumes that there is a way oh, to do nice. it right, right and a way to do it wrong. And, and, and listen, I love what you were saying, because it does feel that part of religious practice isn't about doing it right. right. Exactly. It's about this humility of impurity, I exactly. would say, even of the heart just right. opening, right. you know, and being humble. So that's one thing I wanted to say. But the previous yeah. slide, I thought that last paragraph in that New York Times article was so interesting. But many scientists who signed the petition said they did so because they believe that the field of neuroscience risks losing credibility right. if it ventures too recklessly into spiritual matters. Yeah. 
like, what is that? Is that the, the standard, you know, that, that somehow, I, I don't know, it's like the body and spirit being bifurcated. You know, the body is knowable, the spirit's not knowable. Yeah, I took that to be sort of, you know, academics being for it, they're not going to get grants. Uh, to be honest. It's yes, something like what I was talking about. I practiced psychiatry. They, psychiatrists weren't even allowed in the hospital. Because we were in a legitimate science for a long time in medicine. Psychiatry. Yeah, we were quacks. Psychiatrists were quacks. Mm. We weren't real. It's like, you know, not real well. Even though you were No, that's the bifurcation. Yeah. And so... So, Scott, is there anything that you've read that you think is really like, oh, yeah, this really nailed it for me, or like this really was good? I mean, I'm, I'm very interested from your own personal experience, yeah. like what's what's worked for you, if you will. Uh, the, actually, the book, I first night I was here, Joan met Joan, and she gave me her teacher's book that's turning suffering inside out, and she just really walks through both the Zen meditation approach to doing things, but also human approach, and just makes you feel that's crazy. She actually walks through a temper tantrum, you know, or smashing you know, things in her kitchen and everything. And right. Just, so you feel less alone and more connected. And right, very interesting. Slows you down and starts you thinking. So. Oh, very interesting. So you came to it through sort of failure, if you will, of your yeah, Very interesting. So do you have an intuition that this is a good conversation then to be having? Like, insofar as neuroscience failed you, could it be that what neuroscience doesn't have, you know, maybe Buddhism can, you I mean, know, push them that way? Because in the end of the pain scale, the pain treatment taught me probably going to a lot more eloquently than I can. But as a patient, doctor just give up on you. Right. I mean, there's a pain right. where they just stick needles in you and they Yeah, if they, if, they just, if they can't fix you, they don't want to see you anymore. Yeah, and yeah. Mean, yeah you're they, bringing the numbers down. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Before psychiatry, I was a pain specialist. And I really, really hated my job after a while because, I mean, there's a never-ending supply of people with failed surgeries out there. Because what does a surgeon know how to do? Cut. Right. Cut. <laughs> and often uh, there's a lot of failure in that. I'm living example. I have no feeling in my hand anymore. 
I get a pin in it and I went bam. Well, no, there's pain. Oh, okay, sorry. I mean, you know, this. No, weighs kind of. But for some reason, some the nociceptors were spared and still feel pain. But nonetheless, um, you know, being a pain specialist, you note that when you think of pain at the end of the day, things bother you. The pain level during the day doesn't bother you because you're not thinking about it. You're busy doing other things. Right. So clearly, there are ways to treat pain, absent opiates, <laughs> that are effective. And um, I was forced into writing prescriptions for opiates all the time in this job. I was so disheartened with it. So I'm really intrigued by the fact that a lot of you are, are in some ways, instantiating this idea that like science has dropped the ball. You know, it well, hasn't taken us to to split brain and body, but mind and body really got it wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. So this isn't just a rhetorical device in some ways to put sort of science and religion together. This is actually your lived experience, <laughs> which is very interesting to me. But it's hard to find, because our culture is so embedded other things, you know, when I found mindfulness through a big teacher in psychology school. Right, yeah, sure. And so what I ended up looking for was where did he got it? <laughs> he got it from 2,500 year old discipline. Right, right, right. And then right. I found It's not easy to find. You have to. Right. You have to yeah, you know, work there's, not, there's not. Right. Yeah. You know. I do. I'm thinking as you're speaking about technology and how, in some ways, I'm, I'm wondering whether the neuroscience meditation thing, that attractive is that we, it's our own bodies that have the technology that we can control it again. You know, because technology is really, it controls us. You know, we really have outsourced. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I once made a joke to my son about his iPhone, and I said, why don't we just save time and just, like, you know, glue it to the back of your neck? Or just put it directly into your spine so you don't keep, like, hurting your wrists by having to check out your Instagram account or something. And there's actually, I mean, there's, you know, a whole movement of transhumanism that kind of argues that's where we're headed. Like, we're turning into sort of hybrids between, you know, people and machines. And that, um, and I'm wondering if in some ways some of this is, like, somehow reclaiming ourselves as technology. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, we are the technology. You know, we don't we don't need the opiates, we don't do this. Look, I can do this just by how I, I think about things. You know, I can find this. I don't need to outsource myself out to out. You know, I'm wondering if that's part of the, like, as, as technology has taken up more of our sort of hard drive over the last 20 years, whether this is part of why neuroscience and, and sort of the inner world of Buddhism seem compensatory for us. What is the, the notion of multitasking? I think that's an natural evolution. It. It's not something that's natural for humans. Well, maybe apparently most. never had a mother, man. <laughs> never had a mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like children, very right? gendered. <laughs> I know. Your last I'm couple not, of I'm paragraphs. Uh -huh. Your last couple of paragraphs were popped up in my mind. 
made a film called Heal, and it's a documentary on different um, practices, Buddhism meditation is just one example in the film. The premise was we used to control our bodies uh -huh. and we can heal ourselves. At the same time, I'm curious about, uh, rather than warming myself by envisioning flame, can it be ice? Can I cool myself? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, you know, here's the deal. In Tibetan Buddhism, being cold is not You know, you're on the highest, you know, you're on the highest country on the planet. Like the air is so thick. It was yeah. just a curiosity. Yeah, no, it's interesting. But I'm just thinking, okay, so since the Tibetans have totally nailed how to live in the snow and your underpants 24-7, <laughs> that you should go to like a very, very hot part of the world and find out who are the most advanced yogis there and see whether they have some like, you know, air conditioning yoga. Because you're not going to find it in Tibet. You know, all they do is try not to, try not to freeze it. Yeah. And that's good. Like Tahiti. The Tahitian shaman. Picture the inner margarita <laughs> on the top of your top of your skull. <laughs> Are there any other questions or comments? I hear that too. I, I, I'm with you um, on that, Scott. And I feel like that's part of the, the narrative that we hear when, well, here we are on the brink of something new, but it's actually really old. You know, like we're coming, you know, we're here at the brink and yet it's 2,500 years old. It's as if it's very comforting. It's almost like just when we were sort of like getting to the end of the leash. No, 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 it's okay. Actually, we're, we're, we're back home again. So I feel like that is kind of a, a very human kind of tendency, you know. Like I, you know, I remember when my kid was learning how to walk. You know, he'd walk a few steps and then he'd come rushing back, and then he'd walk a few more steps and he'd come rushing back. And I feel like that sort of rushing back sensation, like, are we still here? Are we still here? That's kind of the, you know, let's return back to 2,500 years ago. You know, we've lost something. We feel disconnected. We need to come home. Yes, please. I see this in that photo. There's always something that strikes me when you see this. And more of a, it's that we're at the stage of late capitalism where truly all aspects of our consciousness and in some sense controlled by the circumstances so much and the loss of, of subjectivity in some ways and that this is the last outlet. And I'm not saying this in a positive way. I, I, I agree with you. It's that what we can do is we can meditate we can still acquire our wealth, find a way to function in society, and now that we have the tools that we know how to actually work the brain in the proper way, we can all manage to live a happy life. It's almost like a um, brave new world where uh, they take away from the end of a soma. soma. They take their soma, they get their soma holiday, and they still go on and they function mindlessly until pain starts showing up again. It's like, well, if we just attack how we operate that brain properly, and not really think about the background of the Very much undermine the entire system that is the 
Some people have said that Buddhism is the new opiate of the masses. You know, so we talk about the upper middle way. You know, that it's a thing. We didn't move the Zen Center from Marblehead to Gloucester because in Gloucester it's Portuguese people who are my people and they're out, they, they're working. They, they, it's, you know, no one's going to stop working to just sit there and meditate. But I think, you know, I like that image of your son learning to walk and going a little bit further and then like that. I guess I, you know, because I see, I, the Zen Center does a lot of multi-faith work, and we do a lot of social justice work, you know, and I'm always, I always marvel, like, being in a church, you know, with my colleagues, other clergy from those different traditions, and then it's my turn to go up to the, what do you call it? The, um, the pulpit, yes, and to do a meditation. You know, and it's, and I, I always, I feel, I don't know if it's true for everybody, but when I feel in the room, it's like what I feel in the library of a high school, and that's been on a high school, 75 high school students, who I say, okay, we're going to meditate. Once they enter, they get over that initial, oh my God, I can't meditate. There is a palpable feeling of relief in the world, of just, oh, all we have to do is just that we can put our phones down. You know. So there's, I, way back at the beginning, one of the first uh, slides where they had was one of the early people talking about natural. <laughs> that all of this is just kind of a return to the natural, and, and I think everybody sort of understands that. And oh, everybody said that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the relief is. I think you're probably thinking Capra. Well, I don't know. I think this guy? Out of slides here, lady. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, it, it's, it's a but, pretty there, but there is a feeling trouble. that's like you know, kind of it cuts across all the categories, the racial categories and the generational categories, and whether people are Christian. You know, like this old Jewish guy, his son came up to me weeks later and said how much his father loved the meditation. I was so intrigued by that. You know that it's, and sometimes I feel like it's Buddhism so much. I mean, I hear your about taking it out of the, the, the context of all the teachings, but there's another way to see it in which it's just, we call
call it something just so that we can we can see it, we have something to relate with, but that's revisional. And from the beginning, I, the, I have felt um, the I felt protective of Zen practices because they are so easily co-opted. Because at their heart, there is nothing to protect. Anything that I teach, anything that we say, is just provisional, so that we can have an authentic, natural experience. So this is how I'm I'm entering your what you're offering tonight and over the next couple of weeks is continuing to open that yeah, up. Exactly. You know right. how it is. We must protect this, even though there's really nothing that's ours to protect. Did you follow that? Yeah. Can I ask you questions about your research? Or in terms of, this is really interesting, like, are you, where are you planning to go with it? Is there a trajectory? This is sort of right now just playing, mapping things out. This is just what I do my spare time. <laughs> I'm sorry, it is. <laughs> I thought you taught it at BU. I do. I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, yes, I do. Um, here, rewind, rewind. Okay, so as an academic, what I heard you say was, when is your book going to be done? Well, Are you writing a book? That was also before. I was like, I'm sure going to write a book on that. So I heard that, and so I'm now stepping aside from that. I am writing a book, but not on this. Um, but I, I teach this kind of stuff. I teach, in addition to teaching straightforward, you know, Buddhism, Buddhist philosophy, art, and history, and all that. I also teach a course in American, in Buddhism in America. And so we look a lot at it, at these kinds of, you know, individual issues. You know, how do we think about Buddhism in America coming, you know, what is the, sort of the history of America and how is Buddhism intersected with it? And, you know, so so this comes up for me more as a, in terms of class teaching than it is for my own scholarship. Well, we are discussing the, um, World Religions um, Conference. <laughs> Showed a, can't see his name. This guy here. And, uh, uh -huh. and, and um, is there any interest in Buddhism because of the Chinese that were building the railroad? Such an interesting the, the immigrant uh, uh, Buddhism. Okay, so here's what we got. Because that have, was before 1893. Oh, big time. Yeah, yeah, the first Buddhists, thank you very much, were in America, you know, with the gold rush. Chinese immigrants. Um, they were not well beloved by mainstream Americans. There was little or no interest in whatever Buddhism they were practicing, this kind of heathenism and, you know, no thanks. <laughs> you know, they're the higher help. However, at, this, at around the same time that Chinese immigrants are coming to the United States, there is a book published in England called The Light of Asia. This was written by a guy named Edward Arnold, who has read a translation of a Buddhist text called the Lalita Vistara Sutra. And he writes a long Victorian epic poem on the life of the Buddha. It is published in 1870, 1860s maybe, and it becomes yet another runaway bestseller. To say that the Light of Asia became voice of what Buddhism was for Europeans and some Americans is a gross understatement. <laughs> now that you've heard the name of this book, you will see it and bump into it all the time. Like, um, I mean, Gandhi quoted it. Nehru quoted it. I remember, I just recently saw the, um, the movie version of um, Portrait of Dorian, Dorian Gray. It's this old, like, Cold War movie. It was fabulous. I loved it. It was so stupid. Anyhow, but at some point, they're trying to save poor Dorian Gray from, you know, he's going over to the dark side. 
whose friend takes out a book and says, I want you to read this story, and it's called The Light of Asia. It's about the Buddha, who was a very remarkable man. This is going to save you. So we have two kind of parallel tracks, if you will, of how Americans are thinking about Buddhism. And there's the kind of Asian Buddhism, which is the kind that's like going on right here, where actual people are doing it, and those actual people are Chinese, and we don't really feel very good about that. And then there's the Buddhism of the Buddha, this kind of abstract, you know, narrative, sort of literary, you know, Buddhism. And that is terribly, terribly interesting to people. But they're almost not seen to be connected. It's an odd, odd thing. It sort of reminds me of how we country. Yes. It was a different, they went to the temple for a different reason, obviously. It was more of a cultural, like what churches, born raisings, you know, right. Lutheran churches in this country. Yeah, I gotta say, meditation has not been how most Buddhists throughout world history have practiced. Yes. It's a, kind of an American thing to think that Buddhism and meditation is like, that's what they are. Meditation has rarely been a practice that lay people have done in any setting whatsoever. It's very yeah, much. It's, it's it's not that you weren't allowed to, but yeah, that's what monastics did. You know, just the lay people were the donors. They were the donors, they got married from other things. You know, it wasn't like they didn't practice or have their, but to sit down and do this was a really quite... Did they a chance, or was it, it... It depends on what time and place that you're in. Well, may I interject that this is what was radical about Dogen. What we chanted yeah. this morning, the Genjo poem, he wrote that specifically for lay practitioners. So that was in the 13th century. Right, yeah. So it was kind of radical. So the meditation that we study, you know, that's so big in America now, like mindfulness and such, there's all this, you know, it's Vipassana meditation, and it's true that Vipassana has roots in, you know, old, and particularly in um, Salinese, Texas, stuff like that. Yes, like it's, it's an old Buddhist practice, but the form of meditation that we're doing was actually developed in the 1950s by a series of Buddhist reformers who were bringing it together as a kind of a nationalist effort. You know, they were trying to bring about like a Buddhist revivalism. So, right, so let's think, you know, you're in Southeast Asia, you're in the 1950s, what happens? You've just been decolonized, right? Holy cow, you're in the middle of the Cold War, you've recently been decolonized, Britain's finally off of your back, and now you're trying to get together a kind of a national self-identity. And so a lot of reformers said, well, let's be a Buddhist nation. Let's have Buddhism be our self-identity. And they then developed this kind of, you know, meditation light practice, which they introduced to lay people as a way of kind of bringing them in, like, you know, that here's a Buddhist practice. But prior to this, what we call mindfulness is not 2,500 years old. Mindfulness is from, like, the 1950s. The 1950s practice is drawing on other things. But the Vipassana meditation that, that we learn in, you know, John Kabat-Zinn and, you know, whatever, is actually a, a practice that was done by relatively advanced monastics, and they did it strictly within the context of trying to cultivate particular... It was done as, a, as an ethics training. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, let's concentrate so our stress will go down. It was actually very deliberately a way of cultivating monastic ethics. So that was completely taken out of, I mean, I don't say in a bad way taken out of context, but it was like a technology that then got used in the 1950s in Southeast Asian nations to generate kind of a nationalist Buddhist identity. And then what happens? You get a zillion people from the Peace Corps go over, you know, Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein and all these people. They studied with these Buddhist reformists, 
they come back and they say, hey, let's learn Buddhist meditation. And that's what the mindfulness was. It was a form of meditation. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's also that little piece of like, yeah, this is a relatively modern formation. You know, this is a modern formation. So I have no problem with it. I, just, I like to say that, though. So yeah, meditation is a really like only in the, maybe like the last, you know, 100, 150 years has that been something that we have identified as being like what Buddhist lay people do. It traditionally has not been Buddhist lay to say that one of the markers of American Buddhism is that it places a much greater emphasis on meditation yes. than other other tradition, other other peoples and cultures have different times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not that many.
is Buddhism just what you know Asians, you know Asian Americans are practicing that was you know, handed down in their family? Is it mindfulness training that you learned in, you know when you were in IBM and you you know got this little special thing and now you you know you do a meditation? Is that Buddhism? You know who gets to decide what's genuine Buddhism? Who gets to this and you know and if that person gets to decide, then you know what's at stake? You know, who's who's going to speak for them? And also, how do people self-identify? Yeah. You know, like I'm Buddhist right now, really feeling it. But you know, on the high holy days, I go to you know my friend's house, or I you know go for Passover, and then suddenly I remember it all those years of Hebrew school. So you know, religious mm -hmm. self-identification is, is very complicated. So yeah, I think most most people agree is that Buddhism is growing. It's a growing um, phenomenon in American culture. But even making a statement like that belies the complexity and the uncertainty of what's really going on here. I've heard, and when you come here, identify as multi. Yes, exactly. Everybody has a hyphen, right? Yeah. Yeah, Jubu is a big one. So the. the yes. Yeah, no, I know. There's a, we, actually, there are, I, I have colleagues who have done studies of which religious traditions tend to be attractive to who, who converts the most to Buddhism. And right now it's neck and neck. Jews are pretty pretty close up to the top of the pyramid there. Every now and then it seems like they get edged out by Catholics. Yeah. <laughs> so the Catholics and the Jews are like, come on, no, no, I'm going to do it. Um, and it seems to also go you know, up at different time periods. But um, Protestant Christians, not so much. Somehow Jews and Catholics really like, and there you got it. Jews and I don't know what the, what the term. I know Jews. I believe it's some Zen teachers that are multi-faith. Sorry, buddy. There's even some Zen teachers that are multi-faith. Yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, I if was you... reading about one today, a teacher in the former school, uh -huh. he identifies as a Catholic Buddhist. How do you talk about religious identity in an age of total globalization? You know, like, I don't even know what this means anymore. Yeah. And it's one thing to say, oh, I'm a Theravada Buddhist in 300 CE, Ceylon. But, you know, anybody, in, you know, like, everybody's so, you know, we're all so interconnected now. the idea like we would pick our own religion. You know, like who ever heard of such a thing before, like the industrial we would pick our own religion. Yeah, you know? with that. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. There's a really uh, good Simpsons episode called Lisa Simpson converts to Buddhism. <laughs> and she is very distressed by what's going on when she goes to church. And so there's this really hysterical scene I show it as the last day of class when my kids just hate me so much by the end of the semester they're just like what well, I'm like, well so the Simpsons don't okay. And there's a scene when she goes down and, and she's walking down the street and there are all these neon signs for all of these religious traditions that are being available for her to, you know, bed, bath, and Baha'i, you know, <laughs> you know. And so she's shopping around for a religion and then she discovers Buddhism. Richard Gere comes and explains it to her. It's hysterical. It is hysterical. But it nails it, man. Yeah. But that's a modern phenomenon, man. Nobody chose that. Religion. 
maybe you'll talk about that in Buddhism and race, but the tension between the so-called ethnic Buddhism and the Andhra Buddhism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I never really thought about me being a convert, you know, convert, but I guess technically that's what I Sorry about that. <laughs> I got bad news for you, John. It's, it's, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting to see it through that lens. Yeah. Because yeah. I always saw it from my own personal lens, it was through the body, having been a dancer, performer, choreographer, and coming into Zen Buddhism that way, through the body. Right. So you weren't moving from one tradition to the next, this was no. just your... Even though for me the connection between Catholics having been raised Catholic and Buddhists is that we love ritual. It's the incense connected. Yeah, yeah, smells and bells. Yeah, yeah smells and bells. <laughs> yeah, for a long time, through much of the 18th century, 19th century, Buddhism was was considered in America to be the it was the Catholicism of Asia. You know, <laughs> especially like in the earlier part of it, because it was like the same thing: monks, <laughs> rosaries, there's you know all this stuff. So Catholicism of Asia, nobody liked that. And then it, it switches, it becomes the Protestant. Martin Luther becomes the Buddha. <laughs> in another part of American history, when there's a really anti-Catholic feeling going on. Uh-huh. And then suddenly, you know, he becomes, he's Martin Luther. But, yeah. But I'm with you. The, the, the Catholic Buddhist thing seems to be much more resonant. But what's with the Jews? Well, so the Jews, I think, and is the Tikkun Olam, the teaching of, you know, repairing the world, especially Americans or American Buddhism. Engaged Buddhism, you know, social yeah. justice work, of feeling, you know, when you sit in meditation, being connected with, you know, your suffering, with universalized suffering, that you naturally want to respond. That's how I understand so. Uh-huh. Isn't there a lot of the form that we find in uh, uh, Zen today influenced by Protestant? Christians during the Meiji Restoration. Oh, well, you know, like, like the robes and. I'm so bad. I'm just interrupting you. It's okay. Um, yes, absolutely. It's a very, very interesting point. So I should note that Soan is himself very engaged in this. In so Meiji Restoration, the time period that he's coming from Japan. In Japan, there's also been kind of a crisis of faith. And there's this great effort during the Meiji Restoration period to bring Buddhism kind of back into, into being relevant again. And so Solon had actually developed this whole notion of Buddhism being like science, not so much for American consumption, but for Japanese consumption. Yes. You know, make us relevant again. We can be modern again. And so Christianity, once again, was kind of the, the marker by which Solon is once again measuring Buddhism and trying to show you know, Buddhism's superiority, or, or at least you know, its equality. And so he actually does this within the Japanese Meiji context. Um, they try, they take Buddhism and they try both to show that it both is resonant with Christianity in some ways, you know, similar to it, you know, ropes and such, but also in some ways superior to it. It's our tradition, it's Buddhism, it's our tradition, you know, we don't need Christianity. We have it plus, you know, Buddhism is Christianity plus. And that's where the rhetoric is coming from. Then he brings it to the United States and it lands, you know, like, wow. But you're right, it's in, in all of these cases, Christianity is kind of the, you know, the invisible or, or not that invisible kind of person that they're in conversation with. You know, the Buddhism and science discourse really cannot be separated from the history of, of different peoples coming in contact with Christianity. And the dominance of Christianity, in particularly in 
Euro-American thought as being like what the definition of what a religion is. Like, if you guys ever thought about what makes a world religion? Mm. You know, like if you get a textbook on world religions, what do you think is going to be in there? Christian. Sorry? These people that wear, speak, uh, it, 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 I don't know if it started off as a joke or not, but, it, but um, yeah, pastafarians, that's what they call them, but they actually legally became a religion, and, and so it's not that difficult in the U.S. hope you enjoyed this episode. This podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. For more information or to donate, please go to www.zencenternorthshore.org. Thank you.